What should I do about climate change? Good question. It's one I actually get asked a lot, and I figured out that the reason most of us feel we aren't doing enough or haven't managed to do anything yet is not from a lack of information, but from a lack of curation. What each person requires is not general ideas, but one perfectly tailored solution appropriate for the area where that person lives and their abilities, and that takes into account their individual vulnerabilities and psychology. Someone needs to curate the information that's out there and deliver it to each of us individually in a tidy, useful, doable package. I just read The Future We Choose, a great book about climate change and the importance of optimism in thinking about climate. But even though I liked the book, I noticed the experience of reading it was a bit like listening to a lecture in an 800-seat auditorium. It was polished and professional, and it was inspiring. But in terms of giving the individual reader a clear picture of what that one particular person should do next about climate change, it fell short. Not because it was a bad book, but because it was a book. And like a lecture in an auditorium, a book is not the medium where one can best receive curated, tailored, personal advice. The Future We Choose was not a coaching session. It was a treatise. Oh, and by the way, Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. I've held off on talking about climate change and the shape of the world until now. If I'm going to speak words aloud and ask someone to listen to them, I always feel that I'd better be saying something you can't get anywhere else. And that's what I intend to do today. This episode includes a clear recommendation on how much is reasonable for you as an individual to do about slowing down the warming of our beautiful planet. To prepare for today's show, we at The Shape of the World have worked hard to find a solution that is both effective at slowing climate change and that is doable. This episode consists of five parts. In part one, we cover whom the solution is for. Two, we describe what the underlying principles are for what we were striving to accomplish by offering this solution. Three, the dramatic reveal of what the solution is. And in part four, we go into more about the first half of the solution. And in part five, we amplify the details on the second part of the solution. Okay, part one. The Shape of the World is about cities and nature, but most of our audience consists of folks who aren't thinking constantly about either of those things. Maybe you live in a city and obviously you live in nature because we all live in nature, that's all there is, but most likely you aren't thinking full-time about the environment or about cities. Maybe in your full-time job, you're working on a whole different issue, but you do care about the big bummer of the earth getting warmer. This episode is meant for you. It's not so much for the person for whom these issues are front and center. It's for someone who knows that they are not well positioned to make an enormous difference on climate change as an individual. Maybe you can't see yourself ever running for public office or you don't expect to find your way to the table where an enormous sweeping change is being decided upon. That is fine. The world needs you to keep being you and to keep doing what you're doing. But every time there's a scary storm or a drought that's clearly tied to climate change, maybe you think, 
Shit, we've got to do something about that. I've got to do something about that. And then you spend 45 minutes Googling and literally 30,000 different things pop up about what you can do. And because you're a human with a human brain and an amygdala, you freak out a little. And to calm yourself down, you go do something else. Maybe pet your dog or eat a Cheeto. And then you don't think about climate change again until the next big event. I say all this because I'm not so much like that about climate change, but I am like that about gun violence. Every time there's a mass shooting somewhere in the United States, or every time my hometown of Chicago breaks yet another record for the most shootings ever, I get very riled up about it. I'm sad. I'm enraged. I call up my friends and say, can you imagine? And then we think up policies that would totally solve the problem and get furious no one's doing them. And then, gradually, I come out of it. I have other things to attend to, and honestly, I'm not an expert on gun policy. It's not really in my wheelhouse. I'm better and have more knowledge in other things, like climate change, and I end up doing nothing about gun violence. Because only doing one thing doesn't feel like enough. To be completely honest, I'll admit that I have yet to do even one single thing. I haven't never written a letter to a policymaker about guns. I haven't given even a dollar that I can remember to some organization that works directly on these issues. Though maybe now I actually will, since I've admitted this in public. Climate change is a huge existential level threat, and anything that big tends to be paralyzing. And one thing I know is that we always have to work with our human mammal selves the way we're actually built, rather than the way we wish we were. We can mount a superhuman effort for a while within our own individual selves, but what we really need is for someone to tell us something, preferably even order us to do a specific action, that we can repeat day in and day out. Not just on the special days when we're feeling superhuman, but even on a lousy Monday when it's raining and we have a cold. There's got to be a solution to climate change that's flexible enough that it can work for most people. Something that keeps your individual interests and well-being in mind, as well as the best interests of the planet. That's the solution we're looking for in this episode. Part 2 the underlying principles in coming up with a solution. One is... Lagom. That word is a Swedish term for just right. Not too much. Not too little. It can be applied to eating the right amount of food when you feel full but not sick from overeating. Or you have a home that's not too big, not too small. Here, we are using the word lagom, to describe the spot we're trying to strive for with our solution to climate change. You want the actions you take to be effective. You want to do something meaningful that will actually work and make a difference, where you don't just feel, but actually know you are doing your fair share of the work of fighting climate change. That's principle one, the bottom line. Whatever we propose has to be big enough to matter. Principle number two, The action required by you can't be so draining that you can't sustain it. 
No single action executed one time, no matter how dramatic, is going to stop climate change, so we figured our solution can't be so extreme that it does the equivalent of eating too much, that it makes you feel weak or unable to support yourself. You can't be vastly diminished by the solution or you won't get up and do the actions again. It must be something you can repeat over and over. And I think that's part of where the environmental movement has been most insufferable is that most of us involved in it will constantly insist that no one is doing enough to fight climate change. I'm not doing enough. You're not doing enough. And when someone we know does make a change, instead of celebrating the accomplishment, we say, good, you did that, but here are five more things you're not doing that you should be doing. So yeah, lock them. Returning to the first principle, what determines effectiveness? We decided to put our proposed solutions to this following ethical test, borrowing a chapter from Immanuel Kant. If every single person took the same action I am taking, would that make the world better or would it make it worse? Applying it in this case, if the solution I decide to carry out were to be implemented by my neighbor Iman and my office friend Sophie and that person I talked to once at a gas station, and every listener to the shape of the world and every one of the 8 billion people on the planet, would it solve the problem of climate change? If not, then clearly the solution we've come up with is not logum because it is far too small. So for example, my recycling a single metal can one time in my lifetime, if every single person on earth did precisely that much, recycled one can one time and did nothing else ever, that solution is clearly not the right size. It's not sufficient to solve the problem of climate change. Then there is the question of how we define too much. For this purpose, I looked for that bare minimum where the problem of climate gets solved if everyone does behave as you do. You know yourself. You're welcome to do more than your share based on your personal resources of time and energy and income and how you rank the problem of climate change next to other social problems. Suppose you're in a better position to have significant impact on gun violence or on accomplishing something that combats racism or even on something hyper-local, something that would make a big improvement in your city and you're working hard on that. Or maybe you just had a baby and you're busy with that. It's fair for you to do something very minimal but effective on climate so your brain and your pocketbook are freed up for other things. So what is that? What is the minimum that still meets the criteria? Basically, what we are seeking is a protocol that fills in for the absence of any mandatory collective action. In the United States, at least, to prevent us from damaging the atmosphere, there are no taxes levied on us and almost no restrictions put on our behavior. So at the shape of the world, we figure what we need is something that can substitute for the absence of leadership from government. What could I do as an individual? And what could you do where each of us could sit more comfortably knowing we were pulling our weight, doing our fair share? Pushing it forward instead of sitting around waiting for government, which, by the way, should act and maybe it will act at some point. But in the meantime, each individual can do something significant. Part 3 now that you know the direction we were heading and why we were trying to come up with this, I'm going to reveal what the solution is. And then in parts four and five, 
I'll explain why it's so effective and fabulous and why you absolutely should do it. But here it is, the solution. The solution consists of two actions. One will happen right away and you will repeat it annually, once a year for the rest of your life. That is, you are going to buy a carbon offset credit. For the second part, you will select one action that requires daily vigilance, some days more than others, but essentially you're gonna make a single change of behavior. You'll tackle that and stick with it consistently. It will be something that reduces the amount of emissions you personally are responsible for creating. All right, part three went by fast. That was it, that's the solution. Part four, we're going into detail on the first part of our solution, the carbon offset. And I cannot do this part alone. I definitely need some expert help here to explain this one. I'm Gabe Plotkin. I am the chief operating officer of Tradewater, which is a company based in Chicago. We are an environmental project firm. We work to create economic opportunity for people and to collect and destroy greenhouse gases. Gabe works at Tradewater with my husband, Tim Brown, and Tradewater provides a way for people like you and me essentially to neutralize the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we're responsible for releasing into the atmosphere. This is not a panacea, but it is a highly effective tool and you may have heard before of carbon offsets, but we're gonna get into it here and really understand it because it is a key component of the Shape of the World's Logum solution. The concept of offsetting is a balance where you have emissions on one side, an offset is a reduction or avoidance of emissions on the other side. So the offsetting is the balance. You emit when you drive your car, I, prevent emissions when I destroy refrigerant gases, and those two activities offset each other, and the net emissions that go into the atmosphere become zero. So Gabe, at The Shape of the World, part of our recommendation for the most important thing an individual can do to fight climate change is to go someplace like the Tradewater website and pay to have that balance you described, to have that restored. So if someone listening right now does that, what exactly are they buying? What are they going to be paying you to do on their behalf? A carbon offset credit is a certificate or document that attests to the fact that a company or a person went out and collected and destroyed greenhouse gases or planted a tree or did some activity to pull greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and prevent their contribution to global warming. So let's kind of picture it in our minds of what's in the atmosphere. Let's think of it as like a single big cloud. And you and I in our daily activities are driving cars and heating our homes and doing things that are contributing to the amount of carbon dioxide and other gases that are going up into that cloud. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that an offset is something that prevents certain kinds of gases from going up into that cloud? It can be. Important concept in a carbon offset credit is what's called additionality. The work that you do or someone does to collect and destroy the greenhouse gases has to be additional. It has to be above and beyond the phrases business as usual. 
I want to come back to that in just a minute, but now so that when we get to that topic, it'll make more sense. Now might be a good time to explain specifically about the kind of carbon offset credits Tradewater does. I want to make clear in the interest of transparency that there are different types of offsets offered by different outfits. And we're going to talk a little bit about those too. But for now, just to keep it simple, Gabe, explain Tradewater. Tradewater is all about fighting climate change. And we fight climate change by looking for sources of greenhouse gases that are going to end up in the atmosphere and making sure that we collect them and destroy them safely so that we don't increase the temperature of the earth. How does one, A, collect a greenhouse gas, and B, how the heck do you destroy it? The principal gas that we focus on are old refrigerants. These are gases that were created and used in cooling from refrigerators to car air conditioners to large chillers and buildings. And those are a type of greenhouse gas, those refrigerants? Those are among the most potent greenhouse gases that have ever been created. And how do you go about corralling them before they have a chance to float up to that big single cloud and wreck everything? Those gases exist already contained either in the equipment like refrigerators or air conditioning systems or in cylinders and cans. So if they're already in containers, how do they become greenhouse gases? Like how do they ever get into the atmosphere if they're safely in containers? This refrigerant slowly leaks into the atmosphere as equipment gets old or it sits in cylinders and cans that rust and the gas leaks into the atmosphere. So sometimes you turn on your car in the summer, the air conditioner doesn't work, and they say, oh yeah, well you had a leak in your hose because your car is bouncing around and all that refrigerant has escaped out of your car. So these old refrigerants are used in old equipment that are leakier, less reliable, and if these gases continue to release into the environment and people just buy more. Sorry to interrupt, but you said this is a very potent greenhouse gas. How is something more or less potent as a greenhouse gas? Aren't they all just equally bad? And what climate melting gases are there besides CO2, besides carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide is the most common greenhouse gas. Meaning like it's the one that's the most abundant in terms of being in the atmosphere and responsible for warming the planet. Correct. Carbon dioxide has a value attributed to it, global warming potential. And it has a global warming potential of one. And all other greenhouse gases are measured in proportion to carbon dioxide. So when I say that different greenhouse gases have different global warming potential, methane, something that we work with, has a global warming potential of 28. So it is 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. The refrigerants that we deal with at Tradewater have a range, depending on the refrigerant type, But the most potent of them is R12, which is 10,900 times more potent than carbon dioxide. My God, that's a really enormous difference. So you're preventing these horrible gases, this R12, from going up into the atmosphere by purchasing them from whoever owns them, and then taking them to a destruction facility and obliterating them so they can't ever seep out and do any damage. And so then what? What happens then? The work that we do to collect and destroy these greenhouse gases gets converted into a carbon offset credit. And the carbon offset credit can be sold into 
different kinds of markets. So in the normal course of the life of these old refrigerants, they are presumed to leak into the atmosphere. There is no mandate that these refrigerants be destroyed. There's no mandate that someone fix all of the leaks in their air conditioner in their car. It's assumed that as you go about your life, they'll end up in the atmosphere. Tradewater goes out and says, we are going to try and intercept that business as usual. We're going to disrupt that. We are going to collect this material before it leaks into the atmosphere, before people put old cylinders into leaky equipment. And we're going to make sure that refrigerant is destroyed instead of going into the atmosphere. And that's additional. That is an environmental benefit above and beyond business as usual. A carbon offset credit documents the fact that we did that. And it measures the environmental impact of the work that we do and lets somebody know by trade water collecting those refrigerant gases and destroying them, this is the equivalent carbon dioxide that was prevented from going into the atmosphere. So if someone pays you for an offset credit, they've essentially paid you to prevent those gases from being emitted into the atmosphere. Correct. In addition to the kind of offset credit that trade water does, which is preventing something from going up to that imaginary cloud, there are other types of projects as well. You talked about the cloud of carbon that you can imagine in the atmosphere. The Earth has natural ways of absorbing that um, into soil and trees. There are carbon offset credits that can be issued for people to preserve soil or trees in a particular way that prevents them, in the business-as-usual case, from being farmed to the point that they no longer absorb carbon from the atmosphere, or trees cut down for grazing land. If you instead preserve that land, prevent those trees from being cut down, you have gone above and beyond business-as-usual and created an environmental benefit that can be certified in a carbon offset credit. So if I have a thousand acre woodland and I really needed to raise money for grandma's operation, one way to do it would be to cut trees, either a selective cut or a clear cut or sell the trees that are on that woodlot. Correct. But I could also make money this way. A financial incentive for me to keep the trees standing would be for me to enroll them in some sort of a program that certifies that I'm, how does that work? I guess I'm just, now I'm sort of trailing off because I don't quite understand sure. what happens between my desire to keep them standing and to make some money. One important point about carbon offset credits is that in order to be issued a credit, you have to follow very strict rules. These rules are called protocols. And the protocols dictate that they set the standard for what is business as usual. And they set the rules someone has to follow in order to have a measurable environmental impact. There are commitments that have to be made that the trees will be preserved for a period of time. And each year, the person who owns the trees has to show that the trees have been preserved, that they haven't been cut down, that they haven't been lost due to fire, bugs, and that in fact, the amount of carbon that they are pulling out of the atmosphere is the same year over year. If you cannot prove that or survive the verification process, you don't get issued carbon credits. 
You said they set the rules. Who is the they? Who makes those protocols? Protocols are issued by carbon offset registries, typically nonprofit organizations that are established to verify and validate that protocols for developing carbon offset credits meet certain scientific standards. They then oversee the verification, the audit of projects that are conducted under these protocols. Initially, you design the protocol and you submit it to the carbon offset registry, and they review it. Have internal experts, engineers,、um, environmental scientists, policymakers, who go through it and make sure it meets their standards. Every registry then goes through a public comment period. They post them online and they seek. Comment from the public. Anyone who has an interest in this type of activity, they then also solicit feedback from experts in the field. Could be the Environmental Protection Agency, could be consulting engineering firms, to provide written comments. After all of that process is done, the carbon offset registry then either issues the protocol and says, "We stand by this. This is an authentic and verifiable way of creating emissions reductions." Or we don't think this is a good idea. This isn't a good protocol, and we are not going to put it out there. All right, that was the primer on carbon offsets. Now let me introduce you to Project Drawdown. It's a nonprofit organization that seeks to help the world reach drawdown, which is a term for a time in the future when levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere stop climbing. And start to steadily decline. That's what we all want to have happen, what we need to have happen, and what has to happen. And Project Drawdown, the organization, is a major hub for how we're going to get there. Their book, which came out in 2017, is widely accepted as the most comprehensive plan we have to reverse global warming. Project Drawdown is a big player in Trade Waters world. Helping them and lots of other organizations to know what's most important to focus on as we try to stop climate change. So, Gabe, my understanding is that Project Drawdown is an authoritative list of the most important items to address in terms of fighting climate change. Where does refrigerant management rank on that list? Number one, refrigerant management: the collection and destruction of old refrigerants. The Recycling and reclamation of newer refrigerants and the prevention of leaks、uh, and other emissions of refrigerants is the number one thing we can do to prevent runaway climate change. So this this gas is really potent. How much of it has Tradewater managed to prevent from going up into the atmosphere? Tradewater has collected and destroyed over a million pounds of refrigerant gases. Which translates? Okay, that which, sounds like a lot. It is, and it translates because of the potency of these gases to over 4.1 million tons of carbon offset credits. One pound of R12 CFC is equivalent to 4.3 tons of carbon dioxide. That、and、must make you feel pretty good. It makes me feel really good.、I'm、very proud of the work that we've done. How does that compare with other efforts of combating climate change? For example, like a company like Tesla or the company that's making solar panels. 
Trade Water has prevented the emission of 4.1 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent from getting into the atmosphere, measured by the number of people who drive electric cars instead of gas cars. Tesla, by comparison, has achieved emissions reductions of 3.5 million tons. You've exceeded what Tesla's done by a measure of like 25%? Right. We've prevented the release of 600,000 tons of carbon dioxide more than Tesla. So Gabe, one of the things that I often hear as because I'm somebody that cares about the environment, I have people that come up to me and say, what should I do? And for a long time, I've actually been saying this, before Trade Water had its own program, I've been telling people, if you only do one thing, if you could afford to offset your carbon, that's the number one thing you should do, and do it consistently every single year, offset the carbon that you're producing. It's the thing that actually makes a difference in the atmosphere. It provides an incentive for people to create these offset credits and do projects that are better than business as usual and really making a difference. It makes a market for the thing that you want to have happen as a caring person, which is to reduce that load of greenhouse gases that are going into the atmosphere. When I looked at that list from Project Drawdown, refrigerant management's number one, two was wind turbines, three was food waste, and actually the thing that often people want to do is household recycling. That's actually number 55 on the list. What do you say to someone who says, well, I am helping the climate by recycling? What case do you make for this other thing, this thing that I consider to be very important, and obviously you do too, for someone to offset their household carbon? People should do whatever they can to fight climate change. Uh, and I certainly would not put down any activity that someone wants to engage in that makes them feel like they're playing their part and um, even every small little bit counts. What we say at Tradewater and what we encourage people to do is reduce what you can by driving less, taking the train when you can, um, taking a train instead of flying, reduce where you can, and offset the rest. It is impossible for everybody to have a off-the-grid, zero-emission existence. We are all going to go about our lives and create emissions. And the one thing that you can do very quickly, very easily, and pretty affordably is buy carbon offset credits to balance out the emissions that you create in your life. Tradewater recently started offering its own carbon offset credits that you can buy from the Tradewater website. What are your estimates on what it costs an average household to offset their carbon for one year? The average American is 20 tons per year. Tradewater carbon offset credits cost $15. So that would be $300 for the year. The calculator that we provide for people on our website allows you to answer a few key questions that make that number go up or down. So about $300, so that's not nothing. On the other hand, there's, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I'm thinking, so not everyone is in a position to be able to do that. But let's say 25% of Americans can do it relatively easily without missing it. And then there's some other fraction of folks who, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but it's such a strong value to them that they want to do it anyway. I think of it as being like people who tithe 10% to their church, whether they can afford it or not. They just do that because that's a value and something they think is really important. Right. It's probably unreasonable to expect that 25% of 
Americans, based on our conversation on this podcast, are now going to start offsetting their carbon, although we can hope. But if 1% of Americans, so there's 327 million people in the country, if 1% of the folks living in the United States did it for one year, did it consistently, how much of a difference would that make in the amount of emissions that are going up to that cloud that we keep talking about? If you take a population in the United States of, say, 325 million, so 1% of that, 3.25 million, times 20, 65 million, that would be the prevention of 65 million tons of carbon dioxide from going into the atmosphere would make a huge difference. Numbers like that are the equivalent of shutting down for one year close to 17 coal-fired power plants. That is a lot. It's a lot. No question about it. Yeah. We know that people buying offsets isn't going to shut down these coal-fired power plants. That you're going to need government regulation to do. But what you can say is, given that that's going to happen, that that is business as usual, Mm -hmm. we can take our part and help a company like Tradewater or help another carbon offset developer finance projects where they're going and preventing emissions that would otherwise happen and offset that activity. The coal power plants are going to continue to burn coal. What can we support? What can we do to balance that out and make sure that the same amount of carbon dioxide is prevented from going up through the coal-fired plants? Well, I just see this incredible possibility of it. This is something that really is in the hands of individuals. There's so much about Uh, climate change that is just not at all in the hands of individuals. There's actually relatively few individuals that are really well positioned to make a difference, you being one of them. Thank you for doing what you do. But especially if you think about it, well, some people could afford to actually offset twice as much as what they produce. They could afford to actually offset their household and somebody else's household, pay for somebody else. And when you start thinking about that, of what that impact could be if the idea of buying carbon offset credits really swept the nation. There's also other ways that people can organize themselves. There are organizations, so you can imagine a congregation, church group, some kind of community of worship where maybe not everyone can offset their own, but collectively as a community, you could offset the footprint either of your congregation or of the households that make up that congregation. If someone is listening to this and they're interested in offsetting their carbon, if they want to know that they're living a carbon neutral life and they just want to know that they're doing their part so they don't have to always be sort of emotionally responding to everything about climate and feeling panicked all the time, at least they feel like they're doing something and they're doing something consistently. And they want that to be offsetting their carbon. I know that there are other places in addition to Tradewater, I should say that, there are other companies that uh, offer offsets. But if they were to do it through Tradewater, what would what would the next action be that they would take as soon as this podcast is done? They would go to our website, tradewater.us, and they would click on a little button that says Offset Now. Offset Now. So take a minute. If you're listening to this on your phone, I'm going to give you a few seconds to pull up that website on your browser. Just keep it there and you can do the offset after the podcast is over. Or if you can't afford to do it yourself, maybe you know someone who can. Share the website with them. 
It's going to go all quiet for a few seconds while we give you a chance to find tradewater.us. Gabe, this has been great. I'm going to say goodbye to you now, but listeners stick around for the one remaining piece to the shape of the world's awesome and effective recommendation for the Logum solution for climate. Gabe, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Part five. This is the final section where we explain the second half of our solution, how to reduce your emissions yourself. I will say that offsetting your carbon footprint actually feels tremendous. It's like taking care of a mess you made, leaving the living room nice for the next person who comes along and uses it. But our proposed solution here at The Shape of the World doesn't stop with an offset. Remember how Gabe said, first reduce what you can and offset the rest? Now you know about the offset, and hopefully you're going to do the offset. So now let's figure out the reduction side. For that, we're going to return to Project Drawdown. They've redone their list of the top 100 most important things to do to fight climate change since Gabe's and my interview. And to be honest, the arrangement of the list is more complicated than what it was before. They've arranged it now by industry and sector rather than the single clear list that they had on their website before. The problems are the same, the solutions are the same, but the arrangement is different. Probably it's more nuanced, more precise, but if you're not in the business, it's harder to comprehend. Um, So you might hear some differences in what I'm saying from what you see when you go to their website. Because what I'm working with here is the slightly older version, not by years or anything, but it's from a few weeks ago. The Shape of the World's suggestion for the other action an individual should take besides the offset is to look at Project Drawdown's list and then select something near the top that you think you can do. On the list I'm looking at, refrigerant management is number one, and as you probably gathered from listening to Gabe, that's not something an individual can do much about by working alone. Number two is onshore wind turbines. Again, not much an individual can do about that. Unless maybe you happen to live in an area where a wind farm is proposed, you could make it a point to go to every public hearing and support the development of the wind farm. But number three, now number three is where we start to get somewhere. Number three is reducing food waste. That's something an individual can do. Number four is switching to or maintaining a plant-rich diet, moving away from meat, which is more energy intensive, and it also creates more methane. That's something an individual can do that maybe you could take on. Number five is tropical forests. And if you live in an area where there are tropical forests, you as an individual might be able to have a direct impact on protecting them. But if you happen to be in Europe or North America or Northern Asia, Other than giving money, you probably can't make an impact on that one. Number six and seven are something individuals can have a hand in. Educating girls is number six. And family planning is number seven. Number eight is solar farms, which kind of like the wind turbines, there's not much the city dweller can do to make more of those. Number nine is something called silvopasture, which I didn't even know what that meant. It turns out it means not just having huge tracts of empty land for grazing animals, but incorporating trees, grass, and animals living together. 
Again, something most city dwellers can't really do much about. And number 10 is rooftop solar. If you own a building, an individual might be able to do something about that one. The shape of the world's recommendation for the second action is to choose something that requires a practice, an action you can do day in and day out, make a commitment to over time that reduces the amount of greenhouse gases that you are responsible for emitting. I can't say precisely what makes the most sense for everyone. You know yourself, you know your nation, you know your ecosystem, you know your community. There's not one solution that works for each individual, but there is one system that can work for everyone. That system is this. Look at that project drawdown list. Select one item that is highly effective at combating climate change, one that will really make a difference. Something that ranks high on the list, something in the top 30. And then give it serious consideration as to how you're going to make that particular change in your life. The key here, and what differs from the advice you might get elsewhere, is that you don't just look at a random list of ideas. You learn first from this definitive list what is the most highly effective way to actually reduce the amount of greenhouse gases going up into the atmosphere? What will reduce your own carbon footprint the most? You are looking for that matchup of high impact and something you personally are capable of doing well. I'd recommend that the next action you do would be to set aside a two-hour retreat for yourself to study the list and to study yourself. Use those two hours to figure out the logum action perfect for you. If you live with other people, you might want to talk to them about it. Some folks are lucky enough to live in households with simpatico housemates who will want to choose the same thing on the list and work on the solution together. But lots of us humans don't live that way. And in that case, we need to find an action that we can execute independently on our own, something that doesn't inconvenience others in our household. I say this mainly so that you don't end up letting the negative reactions of other people influence you or slow you down. Think through ahead of time what might be some of your personal obstacles to carrying out one of these actions on a consistent basis. For example, if you're not the person in your house who plans meals and buys the food, you're probably not well positioned to do something about either reducing food waste or eating a plant-rich diet unless you want to become the person to take over that task. But if you're lucky enough to live with someone who does that work for you, like a mom or a spouse, then the fact that you don't have to deal with food frees up at least an hour and a half in your day, every day, where you could be implementing something else on the list. My point here is you know you. And if you don't, then now is a good time to start because you're gonna to have to work with who you are, who you actually are, and not the person this list might make you wish you were, start where you are right now. You know there are apps specifically meant to help people start and maintain new habits, so you might try using one of those to really get this going. On the subject of self-improvement and the changing of habits, there is a host of books out there and a billion blogs, so use those for help with this. Treat being kinder to the climate the same way you treat any other self-improvement. That's why we are pairing this down to the essential. One, offset your carbon footprint today and then once every year from now on. And two, 
Choose one high-impact action that you can maintain steadily for the rest of your life or until your circumstances change and it's better for you to tackle a different thing on the list. And then it's not that you'll stop caring about climate change. If anything, you'll probably care more. But what our solution does is it helps define how much is enough so that you can stop feeling a jolt of guilt every time there's a flood or a drought or a fire. You will be confident that every year, even though no one is forcing you to, you are neutralizing your greenhouse gas emissions by paying for a carbon offset credits, and daily you are working diligently on one high-impact action that significantly reduces the amount of greenhouse gases that you are responsible for. And you will have the comfort of knowing, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if every single person did what you did, we would be in a very different scenario. The problem potentially would be solved. We could reach drawdown. We could reach that sweet, beautiful place where greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere level off, flatten out, and begin to decline on a year-to-year -year basis. That is what we are after, and that is what is possible. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World and the Office of Modern Composition that produces it are both carbon neutral. We've purchased carbon offsets from Tradewater, and you can find the information about that on our website. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood.